Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome back to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 252, and I am Ryan Tansom, your host. Today, we have two of the founding partners of Foundry Brands, Stefan Haney and Kyle Walker, on the show. They're operators that have launched, scaled, and successfully exited brands that have generated over $2 billion in revenue. Now they're using their experience, industry expertise, and technology platforms to acquire, build, and grow enduring brands. Foundry is what is known in the e-commerce space as an aggregator. A lot of people are familiar with private equity. Essentially, they raised a bunch of money, and they're going to be going out and buying and growing brands in the e-commerce space. Stefan was a key leader in building Seller Central and the Amazon marketplace from $9 billion to over $160 billion. And Kyle's an experienced digital brand builder and ex-Amazonian, if I said that correctly, and created and helped launch over 10,000 digital businesses on Amazon founded three global multi-billion dollar Amazon programs and helped inform many of the Amazon tools and technology brands owners are using today. These two have lived inside of it at Amazon and now they're taking their expertise and the capital that they raised to find, acquire, and grow brands in a way that combines operators and capital. You're going to see that there's a common theme that I am bringing onto the show of people that are combining capital with operation experience and how to grow value. Kyle and Stefan are going to give us a rundown of their background at Amazon, what it was like raising the money and why the investors are giving them the money and what their plan is to deploy it and what kind of brands and companies they're looking for and how they assess them. We're going to dive into what is an actual brand and how is that different than just slinging products on Amazon or on Shopify. They're going to talk about what they do after they purchase a business in order to enhance that brand and to get the value that they know that they can create as well as the founder that wants to take the business to the next level. They have a ton of insights about what's going on in e-commerce. We all know that the explosion of e-commerce, which already was a thing, but the exponential nature of the last 15 months and what that's doing to the aggregators and the pools of capital that have flowed into this marketplace. Just a data point, there was only five of these big funds a year ago. Now there's 55 plus. It's a huge deal and it's something to watch as multiples grow in the e-commerce space and as aggregators buy them at the multiples that are trading that they're trading at and then how they're planning on growing them and eventually exiting themselves or taking that portfolio to generate cash flow and returns for their investors. Overall, this is a awesome interview. I really enjoyed Kyle and Stefan. They have a lot of insights from working at Amazon, working as an aggregator, and then working as an operator in businesses. I love having these kind of interviews because it challenges you, the listener, to start thinking about your business like a financial asset and how are you growing value because that's what Stefan and Kyle are doing and anybody that's combining capital with operations and looking at long-term value growth is thinking this way. If you want to enhance that level of thinking, go check out our intentional growth training at arcona.io where you can really dive into valuations, multiples, and how to grow value. So without further ado, here is my interview with Kyle and Stefan from Foundry Brands. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value. 
giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Kyle and Stefan, how are you guys doing? Good to see you. Thank you. Doing well. So I'm liking this because before the pandemic, I, you know, only two thirds of my, or only a third of my interviews were on video. And I did the last one with two people and it wasn't video. So it was a lot of the talking over. So we'll be able to see each other. And uh, I'm excited to have both you guys on because there's a lot going on in your space, in your guys' background. You guys just uh, publicly went live and it sounds like you guys are on a tear and you got a lot of good goals and ambitions. And, you know, what I'd love to do for the listeners is unpack your guys' background and why you're doing what you're doing, where the money came from, what's the goal, what success look like, what does a good business to buy look like, what is, you know, all, all the stuff. I mean, we could go a lot okay. of different directions and I think we should just let the conversation flow. So whoever wants to tee up uh, who you guys are, your background, and, uh, and then volley it off to the next one. Sure. I'll let Stefan start because he's got uh, double the background. Well, thanks, Kyle. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so Kyle and I uh, have been working together for a long time, and and most recently we're uh, we and, and our partners launched Foundry, and Foundry is a brand portfolio company. Uh, it's uh, you know we're looking for a, a few dozen great brands uh, to uh, to acquire and add to our portfolio. Uh, we're looking for brands born online, uh, and uh, you know Amazon's a big part of that. Uh, which is a little bit of our background. So uh, that's how we come to things. About this time last year, I, uh, I think there was five, maybe seven-ish public aggregator companies. You know, so it's crazy to think a year later, is like 55, 60. Is that what there is now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Depending whose list you look at, um, it's uh, it's a little nuts. It's like a McDonald's sign. You know, you could use another Forbes article, billions raised, uh, more billions raised. <laughs> right. Nuts. Anyway, uh, and and so you know, based on my background, which we'll get to in a minute, you know, I was at Amazon 2003 to uh, 2019. I ended by in the last three years, I ran the Amazon detail page, so I happen to have a few data points and a few opinions that might be backed up with data on how to optimize for conversion uh, on Amazon or any e-commerce shopping. And then uh, you know, before that, I'd been in marketplace with Kyle uh, from 2009. Right, 2009 marketplace business was only 25% of Amazon overall. So I got to be there and just really ride a wave of the growth of third-party selling at Amazon. Uh, worked a lot on Seller Central, Seller Tools, uh, and also Seller Growth. Just helping identify what are brands and what makes brands and sellers successful, and what could we build to help that. And I worked in ops and supply chain prior to to my time in marketplace. Uh, that's where I met Kyle. So uh, Zagreus were calling, saying, "Hey, would you like to be an advisor? Uh, could we talk about an advisor role?" Uh, and I met some great people uh, at some of these other other companies. But I had a, a small checklist, and was like, "Well, how are they approaching this? What's their model? Who's the team? What do they consider? Is it a transactional relationship? Uh, how do they view the founders? What are they looking for?" And it just didn't quite match up. Um, it was close, you know, and, and I like a lot of aspects of some of the other folks out there. But I had been talking with Kyle because, uh, well, I had focused on new growth or seller attributes of sellers who were successful growing on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Kyle had worked on this thing called exclusives. So both of us had spent a lot of time looking at different sellers on Amazon. And uh, we said, you know, we could probably build one. Like, let's go let's go find some capital. And we'll get to that part of the story in a minute. But that's, that's how Kyle and I got here. Uh, we found some of our partners who were influential in finding the right capital because uh, that was one of our questions and, and how we structure our portfolio company. 
Uh, and uh, so, Kyle, if we get a little background, you launched exclusives, amongst other things, in your highlights in time at Amazon. And, yeah, uh, I uh, I met Stefan in 2013 when I joined Amazon, and uh, you know, although he had a few years on me, you know, I still think of those as early days of of marketplace. And well, you know, around 2014, you know, I think what was becoming apparent was that there was this there was this revolution of direct to consumer companies. So having been a uh, a merchant in my past, you know, where we were essentially the gatekeepers to those customers in our retail stores. You know, there was this wave of consumer brands coming to to marketplace that got to bypass those traditional gatekeepers and just take their product and validate it directly with people. And I think there were there were a lot of things as a marketplace that we needed to develop to continue to facilitate and support those brands as they grew and. You know, I would say my relationship with, uh, you know, Stefan really developed out of that at Amazon because in a lot of cases, you know, my was on the, the leading edge of figuring out what it was that brands needed. You know, Stefan's team was great at taking that and making it scalable to all sellers. And I think if you put things together, a lot of what uh, brand owners have today in terms of advertising parity programs you know, new programs that have emerged around protecting your brand, presenting your content, you know, a lot of those started early stage with, you know, those kind of conversations, how we did it manually, and then how we could automate and scale it. And, you know, during that time, we started a program called Amazon Exclusives, which then became Amazon Launchpad as they kind of focused on more of a marketplace seller business. And really, you know, that just provided a blueprint, as Stefan said, of watching 10,000 brands grow over a time period, five and six years. Yeah, I mean, the, just the sheer volume of data points and success and failure stories that you guys have seen has got to be just, we don't have enough time on this show to unpack it all. But it's obvious that you're putting it to good use with the uh, with the, the strategy that you guys are now deploying. To lay some groundwork, guys, for just some terminology. For I know there's going to be a good chunk of listeners that are very familiar with brands and Amazon and e-commerce, but then there's a chunk that might not be familiar. What is your definition of a brand, and how would that compare to some of the other things that are on Amazon or e-commerce? You know, I, uh, I had this question. I was talking with a, a friend of mine as well, kind of longtime Amazon guy, and is doing a lot of work in the brand space. Uh, you know, and he, he had kind of a snarky view. He's like, are these, are we really seeing brand, right? Isn't it just a, a cohesive product line with some extra margin for ads, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, that's a really, uh, uh, a really you know, cold way of looking at it, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, well, we created a trademark, we created a brand name. And, but, I, but I, I do think you, know, you can, you could get cynical, uh, right? We, uh, we actually, you talk about stories, what, this question for a couple of years back in the 2013-14 is how many brands do we have in 3P on Amazon? And there was a fair amount of debate of like, is that really a brand? Right? You know, <laughs> do we really do we really just because someone made up a name is that a brand? And I think you know, there's a better way, and and it's one we like at Foundry is we do think that a brand, you know, yes, it should be cohesive product line. It should be something that has regular releases where your development line. But there should probably be a customer connection, right? You, you know, the, the really memorable, powerful brands are the, the engage is, is where customer connection, and that might be measurable, uh, might be able to look at, say, followings in social media or, you know, some other thing. But, but really, we're connecting with our customers or con- the brand is connecting and resonating with the customers, particularly over time. 
And, and that's the part I think I would look for. Um, we look for a foundry. Uh, that's that's a super good way to put it. You're not you're not white labeling a bunch of pens and selling them instead of through the dollar store on Amazon, right? I, no, it's uh it's interesting because, and this is a small anecdotal story. Is I, I've got a, a friend and client who they own a company that was in retail, and then they went into and they partnered up with a manufacturer that then they white label their own brands. Then they went from retail to manufacturing to then now selling it on Shopify and other places. So like, and they've got this whole community and like, there's people that go to them for knowledge and like how things are working in their industry. And they also buy stuff from them. And so like, I, I think it's a, I'm glad you guys laid that groundwork because I think it's important as we're talking about what is a brand? And as you guys are aggregating brands, it's not a bunch of people's reselling big pens on Amazon, right? I think there's actual company in different ways to, there's something tangible there of value. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the interesting pieces, well, you know, and having sat in this meeting and had to, to lead one of these discussions one time, you can always find an exception to what a brand is. And so, you know, there can be a where that happened where you feel truly proud that you've narrowed in on a definition of a that includes exceptions, you know, like there's, there's always, you know, a way to think about it. And I think Stefan's point is, you know, can't be overemphasized enough, which is, you know, it really does come back to that customer connection. Mm -hmm. It it's less about the products that you sell and it's more about the cohesion and that connection and the, and the back to the customer and that, that, that two way street, right? What are, are you saying the customer doing that speaks to customer? What are those customers saying about you and, and how are you building that loyalty? Yeah, they're actually thinking about you as a company, not as just a buy now button on Amazon. And right. what's, what I find interesting, and I don't know if this is this is a good segue into the next part of the, my, uh, the conversation, is there are a lot of aggregators out there that are just looking for volume and people and data that are selling things with cash flow. And then there are brands because you could have someone that's essentially day trading in their basement, a bunch of products on Amazon or, you know, product arbitrage, or you're building a company that's got intrinsic enterprise value. And I'm assuming the different aggregators have different philosophies on how they want to buy and what they're planning on doing with them. So with that kind of umbrella, get, I'd love to hear you guys, like, wh- how did you guys decide that it was your time to start your own aggregator and why and how does your philosophy compare to others that are out there? Yeah. You know, that where you started on that, you know, we, we were, and I guess that ties me, Kyle and I were talking about some of these meetings because the question is who would be eligible for different things uh, at Amazon like in brand registry or who's eligible for lightning deal. And so brand, uh, and it would come is, is something. So then we should make brand registry. It wasn't just, there's this esoteric guys at Amazon, people at Amazon saying, what is a brand these days? And, change <laughs> right? it, it's, and it would go back to the customer because we're like saying, Hey, you know, the Amazon customer who, who should be giving them lightning deals and, and, and who's going to give them this great access and this great service. And, and as I, we, you know, we we're talking to different people. Yeah. There's definitely different models. You know, it's just transactional. Thank you for your business. Have a great check. Go see you later. Have a great day. But, you know, maybe Kyle and I are subject and, and our other partners, you know, Matt and Tom and some of our early employees, you know, during our time in marketplace, you know, we're, we're operators. We've, we've, you know, been on the phone, like, Hey, am I stuck? My, my inventory stuck in FBA or my account just got shut down. And I got 20 employees at Christmas. Uh, or, you know, our other, you know, uh, one of our other partners, Tom, you know, he's, he's built and exited brands, you know, multiple times. 
So we, we have this notion, it's in our name foundry, that the founder itself is an asset. Uh, they've, you know, they, they expertise and their learning, you know, it's not easy. And you spent two plus years building a business uh, on Amazon or perhaps beyond, uh, you've learned some things, you know, uh, that's an intense the scars to show it too, probably. <laughs> oh, right. You know, you know what that pain is. Uh, and so while we certainly think it's time for us to, to take over your business and, you know, some of what is, can we help you get back to what got you started in the first place and what you really like? Cause usually as you grow, something's going to overwhelm you in the running of the business that you're like, wait a second, I set this up to spend more time with my family and it's getting big. I'm succeeding and I'm getting less time with my family. Uh, or, you know, I really like the inventing of products, but I've got to make sure we're cash flow positive and I got payroll and how do we scale? Uh, and so we, we think uh, that there's opportunities there with founders to stay connected and to invest in a relationship. And also it may not be the right time to sell, right? Some of our expertise is around uh, how can we help you guide you in the growth of your business? Maybe you're a good fit with us. So what we want to acquire dozens, we want to serve thousands, you know, whether that's with advice, guidance, or services as, as we start to bring them out and bring them to bear. So, so I'm, I'm assuming, Stefan, that you, did you figure, because how you described your philosophy, and I think that was helpful as you guys are thinking about how you treat and view the, the founder and the business. How did you realize, like, as, as people are reaching out to you guys to come consult or help them advise, you know, the different aggregators? And again, this is about not about knocking different aggregators. I just want to make sure that that's super clear because since it's the same thing with private equity. I've had so many private equity firms on this show. One was the conscious capitalist PE firm where no hold period, 1.5 billion he'd raised with no hold period. And then others, it's the grind and we're on fund 17 and we flip them after five years, right? Like just different philosophies and there's different right things for different people. But I'm assuming as you were having conversations with aggregators, you're like, okay, that just doesn't align with how I view what should be being done or your what you enjoy. And then how did that translate into your guys's business and how you set it up and raise the money? I, I would say, you know, it was, it was less about trying to find a space that wasn't occupied. Cause I think there's going to be a lot of winners in the space. Like the business model winners. can be probably not 55, but multiple winners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so there'll be, there'll be other winners. I think, you know, we wanted to, it was more about, you know, kind of the, the underlying principle of look, Stefan and I grew up in a business and marketplace that we had, you know, very real and very long-term relationships with, you know, the sellers that, uh, that were transacting on marketplace. And we viewed that as, you know, an obligation. We got to know their business. And as Stefan said, if, if something goes haywire on a Friday evening and and you're off the clock, you jumped back on because it was real people, real dollars and real people's, you know, jobs and, and their life. And so I think it's more about being passionate about the fact that, look, there's superpowers that everybody has and focusing on where the founder wants to take the company and enabling them to, to take that and being shepherds of the brand over a period of time to help it go to new lengths because, you know, of maybe the founder had capital constraints, mm -hmm. maybe they had uh, time constraints, maybe they started this as a side project and wake up one day and they're the CEO of a, you know, $5 million revenue company, you know, being able to, as he, as Stefan said, get back to the things that you were passionate about that led you to start the company in the first place is a huge value proposition. And mm -hmm. on our side, taking advantage of that superpower, you know, lends ourselves to being able to create this community that drives value for everyone. So how did you guys take 
your philosophies that you just described and raise the money and the capital that aligned with that philosophy. Because there's so many times that I've watched either founders raise money from VCs or someone that starts a PE firm raises institutional money. And then they realize after in fund one or two that, huh, I got a bunch of bosses that have, you know, requirements for distributions and return of the capital. And they're going to tell me kind of (laughs) indirectly what I should be doing when I should make my investments and when we should sell. So there's this like huge challenge that I think a lot of people as they're trying to take the capital, align it with their philosophies and the actual the the, the strategic nat- the strategic vision of the aggregator or private equity firm. How, how did you guys go about doing that? Well, we're really privileged in our partners. We have we have a couple of great partner firms, and um, we, we'll share about more, and that'll come out later. But uh, we're we're really privileged because we we interviewed and talked to a lot, and and a number of aggregators are doing what you say. It's it's you know. I'm, I lived around Chicago, you know, you Al Capone, Mob Mafia, you know. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I, <laughs> I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. Hey, no, a broke pension that. fund, man. They'll, they'll give you some money for some uh, for some returns. <laughs> yeah, no, but but I think, you know, there is certainly both VCPE debt capital out there, and there's a lot of folks who've taken the debt capital to try to go big fast, right? But as exactly you said, like, that can be complicated. And there's a balance here of, we're all we're all working to transform a portfolio company business model for businesses born online, and and that's the the fundamental crux. That's going to take a little time, uh, and and so patience is uh, because it's also going to take a little infrastructure. Uh, we're going to build. You know, it's, it's not just buy and get on the balance sheet. This isn't just an M and A activity. If we want to be a good brand portfolio brand operating company, we're going to build some analytics capabilities. We're going to build some software. Um, we're going to invest in in the, t- the talent level of people to be here three to five years from now and to, to be a great brand portfolio operating company. So uh, patience and, and time is one. And then also, uh, you know, I think as we look at the market and all these people jumping in, I don't know if there's going to be enough time to, to kind of wait out um, like just grow organically, like get five acquisitions grow for the company that we necessarily wanted to be. So we're also looking for pretty mm-hmm. like, let's go straight, you know, uh, At the potential, straight, to the right? a, straight to the, you know, like straight to a big raise right up front, you know, rather than kind of like eking out the dilution. And we found a partner, you know, we talked to a few different companies, got feedback on our model, made some uh, adaptations. Uh, and, and we found a great partner that, you know, I think funding wise, we're up at the front of the pack. The crashes happen at the back of the bike race, um, not not as much at the front. And so like you know, kind of that model, I like that a lot. <laughs> you know, uh, we, you know, we're going to build for success, build big, be at the front of the pack. Uh, and and then also because we're fun a little different, we can think about buying a little different. You know, there's, there's some that are fun. You know, I, we've met some partners and met some other uh well, I call them partners. We've met some other aggregator companies um, that are doing it different than us. Uh, that you know, we're able to talk to them. Like they're buying very small, sub one million, or they're buying very early stage, uh, which is probably not us. And but they've got some processes in their team. It works for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, but there's a lot of activity in that four to ten million range, right? That are you five, talking revenue or EBITDA million. or what's uh, what's the when you're saying those numbers? Is that what are you referring to? Yeah, well, I can look at it either way, but Kyle, you know, how would you describe it? Yeah, it's, I, I think you know, sub a million dollars of revenue, you know, and isn't our target. I think you know, we can we can buy different, um, but I think you know, ultimately, it comes down to 
you know, we wanted we wanted sponsors that that saw our, and 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 we got those. And we wanted capital that matched our business plan, which to Stefan's point is we want the ability to build the right infrastructure to do this long term. You know, both of us, both of us spent a lot of time at Amazon and there was always a focus on long term thinking. And, you know, this this uh, to his to Stefan's point about, you know, there is no buy and hold in this. There's there's buy continue to grow and build and then hold. Right. And so the the capital is really important. If you think of, you know, some of these other options that you have out there, either you're stopping constantly to kind of reevaluate and re-rate along the way, or you go the debt route where in two years, if you have some kind of structure with the founder where they're dependent on, you know, a check being available in two years because they've got some kind of compensation tied into rolling some type of equity burnout structure, you want to be sure that they're going to be there at the end of two years to, to pay you. And, you know, having that, that equity model and, and having that capital is very into giving the type of security I think is critical to, to the founders. I mean, look, they poured their blood, sweat, and tears into building these businesses. The last thing you want to see is in two years when they've given everything to it, you know, somebody's whole left holding the bag. And and mm-hmm. I think that was a critical part of what we wanted to have. So mechanically, what did you guys do? And if and if I if I'm creeping too much into proprietary business models or something like that, just absolutely you know, just say it. I'm just curious because the did you guys raise a fund? So do you have like a general partnership structure up top and then an actual fund with a timeline? Or is it more of like a holding company structure? Because I'm I'm curious, Kyle, like how do you mechanically accomplish what you're saying? Because like what we had, I had this guy Brent Bishore who uh, runs Permanent Equity, and he's guy. got a whole yeah. yeah and then Sonny yeah. Vanderbeck was the other uh, private equity guy that yeah. so his uh it's Satori Capital. So Sonny's PE firm they have like no hold period, mainly equity, and then Brent's is like a cash flow hurdle and how he's getting money back to the investors. Because that's the big question is like how do you give money back to the sponsors and investors if there's no time on the calendar where everything's got to be sold by. I think that, well, so first off, I mean, ask, ask away, you know, cause a different, that's a more intelligent way of asking the question. And a lot of people are asking these aggregators, like what, what's the liquidity event, right? How do we, where's the money going to show up? Uh, and clearly Thrasio, we can all thank Thrasio uh, for, for kind of bringing light, um, you know, and I, and I think their, their model may, you know, will we'll play out whether it has challenges or not, but you know, they're clearly moving fast and clearly, would look, they're going to go for an IPO, right? right? Looks like that's what they think their end game is. So we'll have some litmus tests, but I think it's kind of early to tell uh, Mm -hmm. which is the right exit model uh, or what's, if maybe it's a right or wrong, but which is a better or worse Mm -hmm. uh, model. You know, a year ago, there were five of these. Now there's 55, right? And what I do, uh, I certainly think IPO would be one, you know, one way to go. But if we're building a brand portfolio company, and now I've, this isn't just a fund of companies that I've bought, but I've bought a brand portfolio company. Uh, how fast can I, did I buy well? How fast can I grow them? And am I growing that, that EBITDA flywheel and that cash flow? So if I've got a portfolio of, of brands that are thrown off a good cash flow, uh, maybe sell to another private equity company, mm-hmm. right? It, we, should, we should be building that, that EBITDA growth. And back to the earlier thing, Hopefully, I, I've also built a set of engaged customers, right? That I'm remarketing to, or that I'm serving with across the brands mm-hmm. uh, that we've acquired. 
It's interesting too, because like you talk about uh, traditional private equity. I mean, like, I mean, with Blackstone, I mean, what they're doing, I mean, <laughs> they're like, I think they're one out of every five homes in America. They're now the bidder on. <laughs> so like anything that's got cash flow that they can, they, that they can gobble up, they'll, they'll definitely be a contender. But I think it's interesting, again, going back to like, well, the personalities that come with the capital and then the timelines and how you're aligning that with you, what you guys want. And then with what the owners want, I mean, you're, you're, you're balancing a tightrope with all the different stakeholders, which is an interesting interesting dynamic and is delicate. And so like uh, going on to like, when you're thinking about brands, you you talked about the the target revenue size, so a million dollars and maybe above it. What are the, define what a good company and good brand means to you guys and what is not? Yeah, I think, so again, getting back to what defines a brand, I think be a little bit subjective to, to different people at different times. And and there's obviously not one tried and true criteria, but I would say one of the simplest questions you can ask yourself is to define just this brand existing in a decade. If so, then the answer is, okay, clearly there's some connection to customers, the engagement back and forth. There's something here. It's more than just, hey, I found a product and I'm selling a product and I'm satisfying, you know, some niche. Mm-hmm. It's, I can see this brand being durable and long lasting for 10 years. And I think that's really where our focus is because again, as Stefan said, there's, there's, there's capital here that allows us to build this thing the right way for the long haul. And so our business strategy has to also match that, which means, you know, our vision is that these brands are going to be around for a decade that we're stewards of continuing to grow these brands and getting back to the founder piece, which I think is so critically important, it also allows us to partner with founders in creative ways that aren't being used today, right? We know we're going to be around. We know that we have this long-term vision together. And so if a founder approaches us and in some way says, hey, here's what I'm paying for, to a large extent, we can always try and figure out how to accomplish that there so that we're creating these win-win scenarios as opposed to viewing it in transaction. What would be an example of something creative that you guys are done or like an example of how you're aligning the founder with you, with you guys long-term? Well, I think so much of it comes down to timing. As Stefan said earlier, you know, if, if we define, you know, the time just isn't right for you, maybe... One of the things that we hear all the time is I'm really optimistic about the next six months. I'm really optimistic about the next 24 months. I've invested a lot in product development over the last six months. And so, you know, maybe my, my P&L statement doesn't reflect what the upward possibilities are of the brand, but that, you know, I mean, think about Amazon. They were investing constantly to continue to grow, right? They weren't focused on quarter to quarter. They were focused on this long-term vision. And I think when when we hear those those keywords from founders that we talk to, then we try and dive a little deeper and ask the right questions to get to what would your ideal scenario look like? And if there's a way to accomplish that together around the line interests, that's going to be a more valuable relationship, you know, not just for the founder, but also for us, because as we improve the experience and and the founder has a great experience coming through the long-term value of referrals, the long-term value of, you know, uh, speaking publicly in a positive light, all of those things come through mm-hmm. because we invested the extra time to really truly understand what we could do together and make sure that 
our interests are aligned over that time period. And so you can think of when it comes to timing, you know, you can think of things like rolling some equity forward. You can think about earnout structures. You can think about, you know, a million other iterations that align those interests around mm-hmm. what specifically they're looking to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, no, the super, super good points. On the, and that's, you, you, you touched on it too. That now, like, there's two components of what I was hearing too. You got the, what do they want with the business? Like from their, you know, emotions and then mechanically and economically, how are you going to structure the actual price, right? Is it going to be cash up front and earn out, rolled equity, combination, employment contracts, whatever those are to economically align towards the, the longer term for you guys? It, question, so here's what I find super intriguing about the Amazon space and the e-commerce space. And especially when a couple of years ago, when I started hearing about what Thrasio was doing, again, I, I can kind of play the, I'm not as submerged into the space as you guys are. So I hopefully if I say something naive, <laughs> I can call the, I'm not doing this every day is so like, when I think about like the traditional main street businesses of, you know, a couple million to a couple hundred million in revenue, and then in EBITDA from a million to call it 10 or 15 million, it's based on the, val- the the sustainability, predictability, and transferability of the cash flow, right? How, how big of a machine have you built of repeatable sales and systems and processes and finance and forecasting? And then you go, okay, now what industry you're in? Oh, you're in distribution or manufacturing or, you know, again, then they're analyzing it based on the risk of that industry as well. What I was so intrigued with, which was, it kind of reminded me of our exit from the family business is that if you looked at a Amazon business, because you guys understand the Amazon operations, I don't know how important all the infrastructure stuff is more than the sales and the predictability of the traffic and, and orders and the brand. Cause you probably have a model of going, okay, this is exactly how much cash we can generate from this purchase. And I don't know like if that, if I'm making any sense here, but how you're valuing the businesses based on your infrastructure versus not, like, is it the total EBITDA play or like, does that make sense? And like how, where, how you get the return? Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that you can see about Amazon, and I'll let Kyle talk to a little bit more about this, is uh, yeah, you get to see, you can kind of look at the whole market, right? Mm-hmm. You can look at search results and say, wow, there's a new competitor, right? It's like a physical store. It's like, oh, hey, somebody new opened up over there. <laughs> you literally the see it, it already right? don't. <laughs> but you literally see it. It's in search results, right? <laughs> uh, and and so, uh, you know, I think that reflects, I mean, at the end of the day, business is business. There's ROI, there's EBITDA. And, and, and so you can take a lot of basic, the same basic business fundamentals, just like sailing, but Amazon is different waters. And so there's a few kind of home considerations to think about. Um, you know, are you, did, it, there's some, well, not getting too much into the Amazon part, but so I was, Go for it. it's okay. I mean, like, cause yeah, well, I, you, yeah, you can see, you can see things, right. You can see, are there, you know, how fast are people, there's a very low barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people can copy you quickly. You talk about some of the old stories, right. Literally, there's this black cocktail dress. I don't know, it's 2015 or 16, but uh, that was selling really well. And within 18 days, there was over 22 versions. Uh, <laughs> and I wouldn't call them knockoffs, copies, etc. Versions of this dress. Uh, and and I'm just trying to figure out as a you know guy who's running the Amazon detail page, like how do I help customers distinguish between these different dresses, right? Uh, it's already difficult. Like, what's the warp and what for the fabric? How does it feel? Where does the cut fit? Right. You know, what's the quality of the stitching. It's already hard to do as it is. But the speed at which those came because sellers are watching for what customers, good sellers are watching for what customers are doing. 
So, you know, selling on Amazon, as you evaluate the business, you may look at how good are they at, at what are they managing for customer inputs? What are they managing for customer signals? Are they watching them at all? Right. Uh, what's the complexity of the supply chain? Uh, because those are going to have different impacts. Just I'll stick with sailing for a minute, right? You, different sailboat designs for different waters. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and even if you sail kind of the general same design, you sail a little differently. Um, so those are, you know, some of the Amazon sticks that you can expect if you have a hot seller, whether it's Amazon or somebody else, they're going to, they're going to, you know, come and look at it, right? Somebody's going to come after you. So, you know, understanding what do you do around that? Uh, brand strength may be one, but how fast you develop your next product or how fast you listen to customers and give them something slightly different, that, that, that makes a difference. So, you know, looking at Amazon specifics or behavior, be it business behaviors that will, uh, will set you in good stead at Amazon or that we can add in for you, right? Uh, gets us to think about how, to, how do we preserve the ongoing sustainability of cash flow growth? Mm -hmm. That is the same, right? We're going to make this business more valuable. Yeah, I mean, it always is going to boil down to cash flow unless you can yeah. sell it to someone else that doesn't care about cash flow, which is kind of a thing these days. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to pretend that reality is still going on. <laughs> yeah, the thing you mentioned at the beginning about what's a brand does start to matter too. So, well, Amazon is a great place to build a brand. It's a great place to start. It takes a lot of things off your plate complexity-wise uh, as you start to develop a customer base or... You know, if customers don't shop for your stuff on Amazon today, uh, Shopify or, or some other build your own D2C site, you know, during COVID, Walmart's obviously gained a lot of customers uh, with Walmart Plus. And so there, there's something to think about in the U.S. Outside the U.S., well, Amazon is not the biggest site in uh, an e-commerce site in, in a number of European countries or other places in the world like Japan. So, uh, you know, we look for good sound businesses and sound business fundamentals. And we look at some of the fundamentals that we think are going to help you succeed in e-commerce generally. And then we look at some things that are specific on Amazon. Is there something when you guys look at a business, let's say it's got a good brand and kids, I'm, I'm assuming that's one of the top stipulations for you guys. Like, is there certain things that when you look at a business and you're going, Oh my gosh, the potential here, I don't know if there's themes of what owner operators and original founders tend to miss. And, you know, from my main, I'll call it the main street, which is, it's a combination of everything, but the, you know, the owner typically does what they enjoy, whether they're an engineer or a salesperson or a finance person or whatever it might be. And like in the e-commerce space, I mean, everybody, like they've got to understand the online traffic and there's certain, there's certain like barriers to entry from a knowledge and hustle perspective that they have to hit. But is there something when you look at it from like an operation where you're going to, wow, like traditionally people miss these things. And if you do these things and, you know, because your infrastructure that you built, you know, that you can make a big difference and move the needle fast. I think it's a, so we look at about 30 different variables when it comes to assessing a business. And, and again, that'll continue to evolve over time as, as customer data points change, as customer engagements change, as shopping behaviors change. But right now we look at about 30 different variables and, you know, that really takes care of all the major areas across the business. And so we're less, you know, it could be supply chain, it could be an inventory management, it could be, you know, advertising spend, it could be advertising optimization, it could be content optimization. I think what we're trying to do is say, look, you've, you've got this brand, how are you connecting with customers? And then, you know, again, this comes back to, to the founder again, spending that time to really, truly, you know, 
deep dive with the founder, you know, what the opportunities are. Because in a lot of cases, we may even have assumptions on, hey, from the outside in, it looks like this is a missed opportunity. And then you dive a little bit deeper and you find out through engaging with the founder that that's actually been tried and it was adapted to, you know, a specific model. And maybe that's not the biggest lever to pull and, <laughs> and we find something else. But but generally speaking, um, you know, I think everything's on the table. But at the end of the day, a business exists because of its ability to kind of win hearts and minds of customers. And, you know, they're assessing that, um, you know, you have some you have some truly objective data point. You have some subjectivity in it. And it's just it's really having that engagement with the founder to figure out you know, where those opportunities still lie to explore. And, you know, sometimes it's, like I said, capital restraints. Sometimes it's time constraints. Um, sometimes, you know, maybe they tried something and got a signal that they didn't like. And, um, you know, maybe or risk perhaps, tolerance. I mean, some risk tolerance have got to be some, some, something to do with it. hundred percent super common. You know, it, if this is your livelihood, you make decisions a certain way. Right. And, and you're going to, you, you may be more conservative by nature because, you know, that is your livelihood. And so having kind of that holistic view of, hey, here's the universe of opportunity that you have access to. Here's your current entitlement and what we can project is the future entitlement with, you know, X and Y changes becomes really important. How many founders actually know what their working capital is? <laughs> that's a laugh <laughs> yeah that's a right i mean especially if they're getting into holding inventory and stuff i mean i know there's a lot of different approaches people can take especially in your guys' space but like i mean do you is that do, is that's got to be a big component in where people like they probably know what it feels like they probably don't know what it specifically is or how to calculate it or how to calculate it or tied to the growth that they want to have yeah, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, again, as as Stefan mentioned earlier, trying to figure out the right time and and part of our job is to educate along this process. And, you know, can't tell you how many times we've sat down and actually built a spreadsheet to explain, you know, what working capital is, how it's assessed. You know, it does get a little simpler in a lot of ways for a digital business because you have typically very quick receivables. Um, you know, mm -hmm. through mo most places or you're processing that payment really quickly, you know, payables are generally pretty easy to define, you know, the inventory management gets a little bit more complex because you have so many big, you know, even with a non-seasonal business, you still have, if you use Amazon, an example, three or four main days that, you know, are going to be disproportionately big to the rest. And so your inventory can kind of fluctuate at times to serve need. Um, but, you know, then there's also the more basic inventory kind of diagnostic tools where, you know, you might, you might have a limited space in your warehouse. Are you optimizing that for the products that are actually selling or, you know, is mm -hmm. there a mm -hmm. lot of uh, inventory sitting there from being a merchant in my past life? You know, all the things that matter and keep you in a job as a merchant is, you know, uh, how much profit you're generating from that inventory turning. Those are really the only two things that matter. And so, you know, approaching somebody's, say, Amazon FBA account and looking at their inventory positions or looking at their total working capital, that type of lens is super helpful. If you've never been a merchant, you know, you haven't thought about it just in those 
simple terms. It's usually I'm out of cash. What do I do? I need more inventory. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I've worked in an environment where we had finite shelf space and your ability to make yeah. that finite. Yeah, you don't get another shelf. shelf. This is the building. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then in the digital environment, you have infinite shelf space. And so you have a different set of, you know, probably inventory management rules, but they all follow the same basics, which mm-hmm. are we've got to be in stock as efficiently as possible to to reduce that cost and um, and still account for, you know, the old analogy of, you know, if you own a restaurant, you always want one person waiting at the door for the table because then you know you've sold every table that you possibly could. Mm-hmm. The line gets too long and it probably dissuades people from coming and the line's too short and you haven't, you know, sold every table to, to maximize your revenue. So you That's want a one person. Great waiting. analogy. I love it. What I, I think, go yes, Ryan, I guess I would throw, throw back the other way. Like, you know, one of the things that, I guess I'd ask an e-commerce sellers, you know, they focused on startup, they focused on like, hey, I want to drive revenue, drive revenue. They might not be at a place where they've started to pivot toward, you know, how efficiently can I run my business or how much cash am I throwing off to, to think about it? And and I guess the other way is like, sometimes folks, they haven't thought about their exit. Like, what are you trying to get to? Uh, are you trying to get to a, you know, a cash flow model that looks great and has these kind of uh, metrics? Are you trying to get to a particular revenue size? Uh, are you trying to get to an engaged customer count? Are you just trying to get to sell? Like, what's your, you know, you've been doing this for two years. You got your brand up and running. Congrats. It's awesome. Do you have an end game? Right. Uh, and and I've, I've, I've heard mixed answers. Like, wow, I just haven't thought about it that way. Right. So I don't know how you've, you've seen it, but oh, I mean, I'm, yeah, you guys are going to be episode 260 close to, and it's about 200 episodes of people going, I didn't know what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> name the industry, name the size of company. And it's, and I actually, on the podcast, I just got done, it, we were talking about, it. I'm like, it's people walking on sports fields, not knowing what the definition of a win looks like, which is just crazy. Are right, we right. playing soccer or football? I don't know. The guy just tackled me. I thought I was playing soccer. <laughs> and like, you know, it just, and, and it really comes down to that. And, rugby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's, it's his understanding of enterprise value and net proceeds and like, what are your options? And I, and you guys have already, like, I've, I've already, I've already gathered that how you're different from what I, what I, the, what I had heard through, you know, different anecdotal um, stories from, what Thrassy or whatever other aggregator it was, where it was, show me your Amazon account, we'll give you evaluation because they knew how to put it into the machine. It was like buying a product for them instead of buying a company. We're like, not you guys are looking at I me, mean, what you just described, how you're assessing the risk of the company and the cash flow, what the potential is, which is a little bit different. And I think it's interesting as I've watched, I don't know if of those 55 aggregators, Stefan, they're like, what the absolute, like the actual enterprise value purchasing power of all those aggregators could be because the way I, I was kind of like, I heard it. I'm like, I bet you it's like five or five or 10 billion. And are there even enough companies to even buy? So you're going to now have a, the multiple go from two and a half average to above. And like, so I just watched this, these different kind of big moves happen. I have, I just find it super intriguing because someone's going to have to still make a return, right? So they still have to, do the things that you guys are doing, which is buy real companies and make better. <laughs> yeah. You know, as I talked about, as it, one of the set of questions I would ask is, you know, as, as different as, as I had the, the privilege and uh, fortune of being, being talked to by different companies is, you know, I'm looking at your employees on LinkedIn and I, I get that there's M and a, but I'm seeing an awful lot of wall street, you know, whom at your company has, you know, shipped packages out. 
right? Who's, you know, who's talked on the phone with, or, or answered Amazon customer service email, you know, cause these are the things that can get you hung up. Uh, you know, Amazon's not a great training ground to, to learn e-commerce. It's, it's not super forgiving because they expect you uh, to help elevate the customer experience on, on, on shopping on Amazon. Right. And so, you know, you, you, you got to get a return, right? You got to know what you're doing. You got a timer on that. Right. Uh, and by the way, it's very public transparent how they're going to leave a review on your product or a review on you. Uh, and so you, you do see this. So we, we certainly thought operators, not to say we don't need M&A people and, mm-hmm. and we are, we are building our company and we're looking for some great brand managers and some great data engineers and some great, you know, uh, some great M&A people to, to join our team. If they love small business, they love growing business and love operating. You know, what I know in some of our Amazon stuff, and there is a, a thing we do think about in the three to five year time frame. Um, Thresh is at what, 110, 120 acquisitions at this point. Right? Yeah, I, mean, is. I think distant second, you know, after some rumor they're doing like six to eight a month or something. But I think distant second uh, is, is, you know, another one with maybe 30. Uh, acquisitions, right? And and then you know, there's a lot of folks in the the three to ten category, and you know they're accelerating or not. Um, so maybe all up, there's been five hundred ish ish brands, you know, that have been acquired, hmm. right? There's when you boil it down like of, that. There's tens. There, there's well over ten thousand brands hmm. uh, just on, on on Amazon in the U.S. in Amazon Brand Registry. Uh, that meet kind of size and, and interest criteria that the founder would look at. Uh, so, um, yeah. And, so and, there. <laughs> so that's why I'd say like, we're not here to like, Oh, we have to race and beat. It's like, no, we need to find a good fit yep. right? and, and, and help others find a good fit. Uh, if they're ready to sell, it may not be the right time. So mm-hmm. can we serve them until it is? Uh, and then, you know, how can we help create more brands? Right? Mm-hmm. Well, to, to your point, um, is there enough to buy? Well, there sure is today, right? But you know, the rate of brand growth, like we are, it is kind of a fresh table. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. it's still a fresh table. Uh, and then I think that's just the Amazon shopping, uh, or just the Amazon pond, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I we look forward to looking at all brands born online. And so even like people on be- Shopify, or I mean, because I know that. Okay, yeah, that's that's yeah. It. that was that. What's yeah. that? Yeah, you know, Clear Clear Bank, you know, has you know, I think ClearCo now, whatever they're called. Uh, you know, Michelle Romanoff and her team have done some great stuff. You know, providing financing options, and uh, they've certainly worked with founders and e-commerce companies, and 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 talked with them. There's thousands uh, on Shopify that have connected with customers and uh, built mechanisms to connect with customers and deliver great products. Uh, well, and this is right. this concept what like, the, what you just laid out Stefan, is so important because we, right before that you talked about like what is the next and what do i even want and this is like this is the stark contrast where if someone is just hustling to sell they don't have a brand and they just want to get 500 to a couple million and be done and they don't really care what happens that might be a certain select group of people and don't build a brand just go get your money sell it and be done versus someone built the brand with their passion their soul and they care about their community and their customers they're going to care about what happens to it afterwards. And these are the intangibles that people, hopefully listening to the podcast, have gathered over the years. Like, it's a big deal. I've watched deals fall apart because they, they figure out at the closing table that they're going to get their logo changed. And nope, literally, 100 million bucks. Nope, 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 thank you. I created this logo in my basement. And so, like, it was that that was the deal killer. So thinking through that and how those intangibles correlate to 
the net proceeds over time or not. Because I've watched people like literally get what they want, but they took a little bit less money because it was right for them and their brands. And they just didn't know how to make that decision or what was in front of them. Yeah. You know, sellers uh, and, and the sellers that we've had a chance to meet, you know, they've, they've often they've, they've birthed these brands or brands born online. So there's a lot of identity that can be tied up there. And, and you know, who, who do you want to trust your brand to? And maybe some people are like, great. I'm good. <laughs> like, take it. Uh, it's, it's not a child. It's not a baby. It was a business. Thank you. And I've got what I wanted out of it. And there's others like, no, I want to keep still looking go like I was the origin of that brand. And, and mm-hmm. I want to stay being proud of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I may expect that it changes because I would have changed it to, to delight more customers. But, uh, you know, I want to trust the people uh, that are going to be changing it also to let customers and mm-hmm. also understand e-commerce and, and have a deep experience in it. Right. And, and so if those intangibles come into play, it's, it's what's the right deal and who's the right partner. Mm-hmm. So um, as we're rounding close to, to the end here, I got a couple of like, cur- I'm curious questions on like what you guys see is like happening and the trends that are going on just to kind of no particular order. Like, I've watched, um, are certain brands getting into manufacturing? I've watched certain manufacturers try to get into online e-commerce brands and to, to essentially get up in the, the vertical supply chain integration to get a bigger multiple. One guy was on my show recently. I've known him for years, manufacturer of, of epoxy and built an Amazon brand and went poof when his multiple went through the roof because it was manufacturing and e-commerce and influencer on Instagram, like really unique combo of everything. And so like with the, like you'd said, the fresh table, not a whole lot of, you know, decades to go back off of where do you see things going and how does that impact what you like the conversion of different industries or different you know parts of the supply chain and how that's going to impact what you guys do? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think near term, I think, you know, even this year, uh, you know, if you believe what you've read, I think there's, you know, 12 or so companies that, you know, were largely debt financed that kind of went upside down when the, you know, they had to comp against COVID months and, and a bunch of stuff. And so, you know, I think at some point, um, you know, there's a possibility that, you know, this, that everything accelerates in terms of, I, I don't particularly love the term aggregation. If we use that term, you know, there could be aggregation of aggregators. You could you could start finding that you know some of these smaller you know debt financed aggregators start to to realize that you know with the equity funding that others had you know there could be some consolidation and I think you know what we've seen through most of the digital age is just that unnecessary layers in the supply chain tend to get over time. Somebody figures out how to to cut those things out. And so to the extent that, you know, manufacturers become, you know, uh, more prolific creators, um, you know, I think you see things of, of that happening everywhere. It's just a matter of, you know, you still at the end of the day have to have a solid business that's connected and working synergistically to, to accomplish your goals. Just by having a manufacturing plant doesn't solve that. It's that I have to be able to manufacture great products. I have to be able to promote those and acquire new customers. And then I have to take that customer feedback and I have to, you know, create a flywheel back to how I'm manufacturing products and better and anticipating where customers want to be. And so that I think is what makes it so challenging to consolidate. It's not just a Hey, I need a, I need a manufacturing plan. It's like, no, 
I need the right manufacturing plant that helps optimize my business, right? And that's a more complex question. I'm laughing, Kyle, because I can tell you packed and ship boxes because it's making <laughs> real things for real people that have real money, that have real margins, that make a real business profitable over time. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. Right. That's exactly it's, it's, it. It's, but unfortunately, in today's ridiculous environment, that's not always the case. And the traditional founders can't spot that. I'm literally working with people right now where they're trade like I'm well, a couple of different stories, and these are from different industries, different size companies, but I got a PE firm that's buying a company to then sell their entire portfolio by the end of this year. So it's multiple arbitrage on an insanely large company. And you're like, somewhere, somehow, someone's gonna have to continue selling shit to people that are happy. (laughs) And then there's other people where like these private equity firms that are traditional manufacturers, like, well, we need to get into e-commerce. And I've got this one example in my head right now. It's a $15 million EBITDA PE firm. And they want to go buy these e-commerce companies. I mean, think about it, like a $2 million e-commerce to bolt on top of that for the story to sell the whole fund, right? It's nothing to do about, like you just said, making it work over time. It's just like, and it's so difficult if you don't understand this game, like we go back to the sports analogy, you need to understand this to spot it. Because otherwise the story makes sense on on face value, but most people don't know what's actually going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, just as just as Stefan said, there is no such thing as buying or holding. A business is a living entity. You're either you're either continuing to grow. There's something happening every day. That function needs to continue. It needs to get better. It needs to be improved. And what are the processes to do that? And part of it may be, hey, look, we, you know, there's a time and place to go buy something. There's a time and place to go build something. There's a time and place to, you know, outsource. But ultimately, connecting all those pieces in a way that makes the most sense for your business to run, you know, ultimately only facilitates your connection to, am I connecting with customers and solving a problem for them? Because at the end of the day, if you're not, it doesn't matter how much you can manufacture. Like you said, that's the PE, M&A, Wall Street. We're like financial engineering. <laughs> my, my business partner, when he, he worked at a PE firm for like a hot second, he was like, yeah, they would have all these models of like we buy the company and then the growth just 45 degree angles straight up. <laughs> and he's just like, how about we not like that's not real life. And it's so interesting, man. I just it's so fun to hear people with common sense, but then back it up with discipline and execution. Yeah, it goes back. You know, I worked in I worked on a farm when I was twelve for a long time, and and then fourteen worked in a bike shop. You know, which is small business, and we opened two additional stores. And you know, at the end of the day, you're like, you know, uh, you see how the money works when you in in where it goes because mm-hmm. you have the, the because of size, you can see see it very easily. And 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 then as you grow, your business grows. It may be harder to see, but having that background, uh, you can you can extrapolate. <laughs> Yeah, you know, pretty quickly. Someone paid for the yeah, box. You gotta send it on. Marvin. Yeah, makes a difference. Makes a difference. I love, I love the, I love the farming analogy because Stefan and I have have talked about this before. You know, my grandfather had a farm too, and it, you know, at the end of the day, you may start at five thirty in the morning, and you're not done until the hay is in the barn. We can sit and talk about how the hay needs to get in the barn. We can sit and talk about how valuable the hay is. We can talk about where we're going to store it, but at the end of the day. Like somebody's got to cut it. Somebody's got to, you know, put it in the rails and somebody's got to get those 
yeah, yeah. on the bail wagon and we got to get it off and we got to get it sorted. So you don't get the multiple expansion from sitting on the porch, having a cocktail, talking about it like that. Come on. I've <laughs> never heard about multiple expansion uh, on, on bales of hay, but uh, sure I interviewed this, good. this uh, accountant once and he goes, I was like, tell me about your work. habits." He's like, I grew up on a dairy farm. You milk the cows in the morning and the afternoon, no matter what. <laughs> it's just like, all right. <laughs> All right, well, I've taken us down a, down a random rabbit hole, but to get, we'll, we'll uh, wrap up for you guys. I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I have a question that I ask everybody at the end of the show about the word intentional because we renamed the podcast and our, our framework that a couple of years ago. And I love it because it means so much. And I want to hear if you guys were to talk to an owner or go back to yourself and, you know, before you uh, joined Amazon, what would you say to yourself of what the word intentional means? Kyle, you first. To me, I always think about what I'm trying to accomplish and, and making sure that my actions every day are, I know you're not supposed to the definition of a word in, in defining it. I'll but, deal with uh, it. It's all, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's working back from what I'm trying to accomplish and, and how can I be intentional every day about trying to you know make decisions that support getting to that end point. Um, I've always... I've always tended to, you know, in terms of people, you know, what's somebody's five-year plan? And I've always thought that question was hard to answer for me because my focus, how can I be better tomorrow than I was today? That's all I'm focused on wherever I'm at five or 10 years will be a better, is, is where I'm supposed to be in a better place, right? I'm going to focus on being intentional with my actions every single day to try and be a little bit better tomorrow. And, and I think, that only happens if you're, where is my ultimate end goal? And, um, you know, I think that forces intentional action. I love it. How about you, Stefan? I don't know. It's baseball season. I'm, I should be watching the Cubs game right now. And, uh, you know, I'm watching my kids play baseball and other sports, you know, as, as they're, they're, they're kind of growing through it. Uh, and, and some of the intentional things is you, you know, I guess the intentionality there, part of why I love baseball is because it's a game and you have to think through like on any given play, a whole bunch of different stuff can happen. Right. And, and so there's understanding the connections between what can happen and then having some principles and how you make decisions you know, to, to connect, you know, to, to help the connections, it's simple, it's a simplifier, right? Whether tenants or other, other principles use make decisions. So, you know, some of what Kyle said, I can't predict the future. I don't know where it's going to go, but I, I can, you know, go, here's some objectives that I have. Uh, what are my decision principles? One of which would be like, Hey, I have an open hand on those objectives and something better may come. Mm-hmm. But if I know how I make my decisions, we're good. So, you know, that's fantastic. That's- if I have to watch a different team than the Cubs, you know, that may be okay. Cause baseball is still better than other sports. I might want to watch. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I can have that open hand, but you know, having, having some objectives, having some decision criteria, you know, combined together to, uh, to give you some, what I think is intentionality. I love it guys. It's been an absolute blast. What's the best way for the listeners to get in touch with you, find you and uh, reach out for more information. Best way to get in touch with us is, you know, we're both very present on LinkedIn. Uh, foundrybrands.com is our, our uh, company website uh, for ourselves and our partners and our enterprise. Uh, and that has a contact form that'll that'll get it to us. Thanks, yeah, guys, for coming on the show. Two separate contact forms if you're interested in there or if you're interested in uh, having a conversation to figure out what your business is worth. Either one, super valuable uses of our time. So encourage everybody to, to come drop us a note. Oh,
Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stefan and Kyle. Big takeaway is think about your business like a financial asset. Other people are, and the people that are creating real wealth right now are thinking about how to take capital, deploy it into real brands and real companies, and de-risk that cash flow by building sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow that grows enterprise value to give more choices to the people that own that financial asset, whether it's optimizing for lifestyle, optimizing for wealth, optimizing for an exit, regardless of what's important to you, you will have choices if you have a valuable business. Go check out the Intentional Growth Training at Arcona.io to deepen your knowledge and shift your mindset away from annual income towards long-term value creation. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.